we have these neat categories today. Like, okay, here's the late medieval period. And then, okay, okay here's the beginning of the Reformation. I think later in life, Luther was more mindful of some of that transition. But early on, Luther thinks of himself as what we would call just a, a medieval man. And I, I give that a lot of attention in the book because it gives us a more Luther-like perspective on what he's doing. So even when he's writing his 95 Theses, he doesn't see this as, oh, I am going to break from the church. Rather, he sees this as, this is my attempt to renew the church that I love. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I'm Sam Beerig, and I serve here at Midwestern and Spurgeon College as the dean of the college and teach a number of classes here, but uh, I'm happy to host this morning, and and we're going to be discussing with Matthew Barrett his new book, The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church from Zondervan. So, Dr. Barrett, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Happy happy to bring you on. You know, it's been a lot of work, but we're just happy to extend some 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 help to you and just interview you on your on your brief little book here. So <laughs> Well, uh I want to start in in a fun place with you and you and I actually discussed this offline the other day and reading your book, I was I'm always checking Luther on anything that I that I can read and I happen to be in first John devotionally right now, and I was working through his works, largely connected to your book, and I, so I just want to read something real quick. I will tell students before I read it, if I had three PhDs, I would choose Luther for my third. Yeah. So I chose my first one and did that one. Uh, the second one would probably be on the Trinity, I think, and then Luther, just such a compelling figure. So That was ahead. the right answer. Yeah, so. no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. So I uh, went with Proverbs and, and wrote that with you, but, but still— um, Luther's just, I mean, his marriage, so many things. That's going to be the main topic that we're going to discuss here. But let me just start with this brief quote from him and then make a comment and see what you think about it. But this is First John, and I just picked it up, and I was like, oh, I'll check this. And, and for the listeners, you should also check into Augustine's First mm-hmm. uh, John commentary. But this is what Luther says to start his First uh, John lectures, okay? He says, since I see that the devil is assailing us on all sides— and that we do not have peace anywhere, we should bear in mind that God wants to keep us in his church, in which he has given us his word, and we should understand that the word of his is more powerful than all devils. Mm-hmm. And it, it just made me think, uh, as I was reading alongside what you had written, he just worked with a different metaphysic. He viewed the world yeah. in a different way, and his understanding of the truth of Scripture and even his, yeah, just his metaphysic was a very different inheritance mm. than the one that we have received. And so, anyway, any thoughts on that as, as we begin? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you pulled that out of your library. I think you're right. We do tend to think of Luther as if here's this, this man who's going to usher us into the Enlightenment and, and whatnot. But when you read his commentaries, it, it's very clear. Well, he's very much operating with the metaphysic 
of the great tradition. And then it comes to bear in beautiful ways in his interpretation of, of God's word. Yeah, that's great. Before we move on from kind of introductory pieces, I just want uh, the, the audience must know a bonus feature of this book, if they get it, is that it smells incredible. Okay. Um, I, you know, we are craftsmen just like everyone else, every discipline in, in life, and, and uh, <laughs> you're smelling it now. I haven't smelled it uh, yet. Yes. I, every time I cracked it open, I was like, man, this is, it, it invites more reading. So okay, that's, um, I don't know if Zondervan playing that, but that's a, I've, I've heard that Zondervan has inserted a, a secret smell yeah, to, to really yeah. uh, appeal. I mean, it's supposed to increase, per, you know, sales. Yes, but, yes no doubt. But it, if well, you're a true reader, then it works. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it does increase the, uh, the, the virtue of, of going for it. I just want to compliment, uh, as I read all the way through it, I found it to be a great blend, um, before I start with some questions, just of hard-bitten scholarship but that doesn't read uh, like you're eating paper, right? No. You may be smelling glorious paper <laughs> at the time, but it, but it doesn't read that way. And really, I, I want to start with, it seems to me, and just knowing you, this thesis has really been expanding and then focusing and tightening, expanding for you for years. And just, yeah, I mean, I uh, want you to speak to that, how in many ways the real an- antagonists of history are, it seems, more so the voluntarist, nominalist group, and maybe even like Enlightenment, folks, not so much our reformers, right? And so it seems like that is driving in a lot of ways what you're going at with this project. Would you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that is a good default, even corrective position, because you're right, especially Luther, maybe not so much some of the other reformers, but especially Luther, he often gets painted as if he's just carrying on the voluntarist, nominalist project of the late medieval period that started with uh, Scotus and Occam and Beale. But first of all, that's not good history, right? I mean, even that famous year, 1517, reveals otherwise, and we can get into that. But Luther, as you've picked up on, Luther's just more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not that there's no signs uh, of maybe a voluntarist tendency here or or a nominalist tendency there, but to paint him in in that light entirely really ignores the rub he had with that whole project, especially as it translated from metaphysics into soteriology. So it's not to say that Luther, you know, is is writing entire books on metaphysics or soteriology, but... The style in which he's writing is entirely different. But uh, as he is evolving from year to year, we actually see something quite different in Luther. It, it really is a break with that project altogether. Yeah. So I want to ask a two-part question uh, is using some scissors to get into the, the issue for, for the audience here. So in 1517, so I'm going to ask both the questions and then just see you <laughs> work with both of them. In 1517, did Luther understand himself to be a Protestant or more so a medievalist? Okay, so that's the first question. And then the second one is, now, let's say later in 1545, which is the year before his death, did he understand himself to be a Protestant the way, say, I I don't know, any any person post would conceive of themselves as possibly not connected to the Catholic Church in the same way. I'm, I'm wanting you to get into us what's happening psychologically for him um, in these different aspects of his life. So earlier on, 1517, and then later before he dies, what is shifting, what is not shifting? That's what I'm after. Well, I think many popular narratives will say something like, 
Luther is breaking from the tradition, even as early as 1517, and he is abandoning the inheritance he has received and departing from Mother Church, Rome. And then that popular narrative, if you follow it through, it does start to struggle as you get into the 1540s because at that point— Luther, what what is was happening, Luther? It seems as if the crisis is not over. Mm. It's not as if the Reformation has worked out as he mm. thought it would, mm. at least not perfectly. So, sure. Uh, it, and so you have to do something there. Sometimes in in the popular narrative, you'll hear people say something like, "Well, at that point." They'll feel that tension, but they'll push against it, and they'll say something like, well, at that point, Luther is is triumphant, and he's realized that the Reformation's this whole new successful church and even denomination. And the problem with that whole narrative is when you look at either 1517 or the 1540s, things are not that clean. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not even convinced, this comes out in the book a lot, I'm not even convinced that's Luther's mindset. Mm. So if you go to the 1517, for example, Luther doesn't think of himself as breaking with mm-hmm. the church. Yeah. In, in fact, to the bitter end, even you know, 1520, 1521, Luther still thinks of himself as being a faithful Catholic. Mm-hmm. In other words, he, he sees himself as part of the small-c Catholic universal church. And and I would go so far to say, even in 1517, Luther sees himself still within the institutional church. He hasn't been excommunicated right. at that point, so we have to keep that in mind. What does that mean for Luther? Luther didn't... I mean, we have these neat categories today, right. like, okay, here's the late medieval period, and then, mm-hmm. okay, okay right. here's the beginning of the Reformation. I think later in life, some of that, Luther was more mindful of, of, of some of that transition. But early on, Luther thinks of himself as what we would call just a, a medieval man. Right. Yeah. And I, I give that a lot of attention in the book because it gives us, a, a, a I think, a more Luther-like perspective on what he's doing. So even when he's writing his 95 Theses, he doesn't see this as, oh, I am going to break from the church. Rather, he sees this as, this is my attempt to renew the church that I love, that he thinks there have been certain innovations that have corrupted, especially the popular imagination of the laity. And given Luther's pastoral side, that's really upsetting to him. Even in 1517, Luther, we we tend to think Luther had it all together (laughs) as if the entire Reformation program is embedded in that moment. It's not. When you read the 95 Theses, for example, you, you won't find what you find in some of his later writings. You won't find in explicit form, say, sola fide, or even sola scriptura, though there are, I think there are hints of it. Rather, what you find is a man who's wrestling with what he thinks the church has believed in the past and what he now sees as abuses of those practices, maybe even misuses or exaggerations. And that's where on the, the social side of Luther's societal even ecclesiastical life, Luther is quite disturbed. Now, there's a whole other side to this, right? Because, and maybe you're going to go here, Sam. You mentioned Beale earlier. Uh, we, we could talk more about that because on the theological side, Luther also is having a crisis in which he's been taught this via Moderna yeah. 
and has assumed, oh, this is just faithful Catholic teaching, only to have a major crisis in his life where he discovers, actually, I'm not convinced anymore this is faithful Catholic teaching. This actually seems far more innovative, even a departure from that Augustinian tradition. And as a result, even grace itself seems to be redefined. And and for Luther, so I guess what I'm saying is in 1517, our eyes tend to be drawn to the 95 Theses and the abuse of indulgences and, and, and that societal pressure. But we also have to remember the other side of this coin. There's a theological story that goes back to you know Luther's Theses on scholastic theology that if there is a break— it's not Luther breaking with the Church Catholic, the Church Universal. It's Luther breaking with the Via Moderna, mm-hmm. which he comes to learn is actually a more recent innovation theologically than the Augustinian heritage that he is slowly but rapidly <laughs> rediscovering. Right. That's yeah. great. Give us a little more on on Beale, actually. So yeah. you spend some time there, and he really immersed himself and was pushed to immerse himself in that and eventually comes to— reject the the Via Moderna, as you said. Yeah, give us a little more on even the tutelage of Beale to him and then and then afterward. Yeah, this is incredibly important. I, I can't emphasize it enough for Protestants. I think sometimes as Protestants, we come to Luther in particular, or even the Reformation at large, and we think to be Protestant is to reject all that scholastic. And if you just read Luther on the surface, I, I see how someone could conclude that because they just hear the word scholastic used in polemical ways. But you have to, of course, this is just good history, right? You have to also put words in context. Mm-hmm. And when when you do so, you discover scholasticism was a, a very long and sometimes even diverse period. And there's even questions whether Luther understands this entirely. Yeah. Some, I think some other re- reformers like Peter Mar Vermigli, Martin Bootser, and others understood this maybe a little bit better than Luther, at least early on in, in when when we're talking about the young Luther. But essentially, Luther is trained in a scholastic tradition that is actually more – it's actually located in the late medieval period. So when we're talking about Middle Ages, right, this is a thousand years. This right. is a long, yes. long period. Yes. We have the early Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages, and the late Middle Ages. And when we refer to scholasticism in particular – we have to differentiate between the scholasticism of the High Middle Ages, which would be associated with someone like uh, Anselm of Canterbury, for example, or uh, Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. though there are many others, Bonaventure and many others that you know we don't need to explore. But the point is that type of scholasticism is in many ways quite rooted not just in an Augustinian metaphysic, but also – in an Augustinian theology of grace. And it might sound like, well, what do those two things have to do with one another? But actually, they're very closely linked to to each other. When you move forward in time, right on the eve of the Reformation, so think here 14th and 15th centuries, here you have a shift that takes place. Uh, This is now what we call the late medieval period. And you have classicism evolve into something it wasn't before. Not that there are are no points of continuity. I don't want to overplay that. But there are 
significant changes that occur. And we went into these in the last episode, so I won't you know belabor these, but uh, listeners may want to go back and listen to the last episode if they missed it, because uh, I talk about what those changes include. So, for example, Scotus and, and his voluntarism or Occam and, and his nominalism. Beale is fascinating because Beale takes both of these together and actually, though it's actually, I think, there in Occam, but Beale really brings these home. I mean, he's preaching sermons even. Mm-hmm. And he takes this nominalism and voluntarism and he actually applies it in strategic ways to both salvation and even pastoral ministry. Mm. In, in many ways, he reminds me of Pelagius, who is really trying to be pious right. and give a motivation for doing good works. Well, with with Occam and Beale, you, you have a, a new dynamic because suddenly God can, can make a you know, if you look at, say, Thomas Aquinas, just to pick on him for a second, whatever our disagreements may be with Thomas Aquinas on, say, infused versus imputed righteousness, he at least believed, and this is just very Augustinian of him, he he at least believed that grace had to be primary. Mm-hmm. You see this in his doctrine of predestination. You see even when he when he starts to creep up on justification, he is very clear about original sin. And he's very emphatic about the necessity of grace being primary. Otherwise, there will be no activity on our part in the end. But with Beale, this changes. Suddenly, grace is not primary in that, in that uh, Augustinian intimistic sense anymore. Uh, now, God can simply, by divine fiat, declare that a covenant in which if man does his best, if man does what is within him, then God, and only then, will God respond with grace. And all that's included with grace, forgiveness, even further grace for meriting justification and so on. It, it is a complicated system that I go into in the book. But the point is, this scheme suddenly puts grace subsequent to you doing your best by virtue of what lies within you. And Luther is taught this. In many ways, he, he's born and bred on this type of metaphysic and soteriological program by his own professors. In fact, this is a bit of a side note, but even later when Luther turns away from this, they're enraged at him. Like, how could you? Mm. It's a betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> it's that personal. Right. It, it's not just of them as professors, but of the university. So it is that significant. But there's a number of, of factors that lead Luther to start questioning whether this is actually Catholic teaching or whether this is more innovative and a break from the Augustinian understanding of grace. First of all, he's reading scripture Second of all, he is reading Augustine, mm. and both of those play into his break with the, the Via Moderna, so that Luther starts to question, first of all, is a voluntarist, nominalist understanding of God and grace, is that actually how Scripture positions the, everything from the justice and righteousness of God to the necessity and primacy of grace itself? He even starts to wonder whether this the voluntaristic and nominalistic side of grace is creating a certain anxiety within him. Mm. Now, it's a bit of an evolution. Mm. I don't know that he realizes this all at once, but he starts to wonder, well, 
even though Occam and Beale have promised me God's not going to go back on his word, he will actually reward me with grace if I do my best. Uh, Luther's put in this position where he first has to do his best. And you know the story. It is quite maddening for him because, and again, this is going to lead to Luther's law gospel distinction later on. But he even even here, this early, he begins to wonder, is there a confusion of the two so that uh, I, I'm having to do what lies within me? Well, what is within me? And, and there's this fascinating illustration that Beale uses of a bird who's wounded and it's almost like there's weights on the bird and it, or it's got a broken wing and is trying to fly as if God's – if the bird just tries, tries really hard mm-hmm. to fly. And if it can just get off the ground, well, then God will – you know, the wind will come in and you know sweep the bird up and, mm-hmm. and help him along. And Luther just says, I'm like that bird except I don't just have a broken wing. Mm-hmm. I hate God. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm – Drowning in the condemnation of and, and guilt and, and of my sins and the corruption of my nature, there has to be something more radical that occurs. And so Luther realizes that whole illustration is he, he has to scrap it. Mm. But there's other things plaguing Luther at this point. He's wondering, okay, even if I – even let's just assume I can do my best, which Luther begins to question because of the Augustinian doctrine of original sin. Is it even feasible to begin with? But let's just put that aside and assume you can't. Well, then Luther is wondering, how do I know? In other words, Beale hasn't really given me the type of assurance or Occam to know when or if I have done my best and what entirely that entails, he's left without any type of confidence or assurance. And from that point, everything unravels because then even though Occam and Beale have promised him God won't go back on his word, Luther starts to question this. Well, if God truly is this voluntaristic God in this nominalistic world, how do I know for sure that he won't? What if he goes back on his covenant after all, Occam and Beale gave many examples in which God could command one thing and then change to command something else, or at least it's, it's hypothetically possible. Right, right. Well, this begins to plague Luther as well. And you can just see through some of these examples, Luther becomes frustrated. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you couple this with a growing frustration as well with abuses and mm-hmm. indulgences and you can see how it's the perfect storm because suddenly Luther is presented with a, a type of God in which he does not ever find a gracious benevolence towards him. And I think it, I think it really does bring Luther to the breaking point. But to, to your point, Sam, I know I'm getting long-winded here, but to your point, I think what's so key about this experience and this crisis for Luther is that – Luther is discovering more and more, sometimes even accidentally, that what he's been taught is actually the the innovative bit Mm -hmm. and the innovative part. And what he's digging up and discovering is far more ancient and Catholic than they told him, which is the Augustinian part, whether it's metaphysical or even soteriological. And that infuriates Luther all the more because then he feels, well— I don't know that I can actually trust the entire program that was given to me that I unwrapped and then attempted to to uh, enjoy. Actually, there's a, a an entire tradition here that seems to betray mm-hmm. what 
may be the true Catholic faith. And so that begins a revolution in Luther's thinking as he begins to read Augustine in particular, and he's lecturing on the Bible simultaneously, he begins to reimagine, well, then who is God and what does his grace look like if it's not what, what I thought? And I think at that point, there's been lots of good scholarship on this by Lutherans and non-Lutherans alike. I think historians and theologians are right to say there's a Catholic Luther, Catholic with a small c, there's a Catholicity to Luther's evolution here in which he's actually rediscovering a heritage that is far more ancient than the one he was born and bred on, the, the Via Moderna. That's great. Yeah, it, it did seem, as I, I was working through it, that's where his, it's the fear of the Lord that is working through him, and then just sitting at the feet now of Augustine and, and, and just lecturing on Scripture, these sorts of things, and he's able to kind of push himself to the point of, uh, will the real Catholic, please stand up, and, and that is, and that's him, right? And he can, and yeah. he can see that, and it allows him to work his way through the diet of worms and all those things. He's like, yeah. he can actually stand up under it because yeah. he's confident. Hi, friends. This is Matthew Barrett. We're taking a break from our podcast because I have some exciting news to share with you. I am the director of the Center for Classical Theology, and on November 13th, the evening before ETS, we have our kickoff inaugural lecture. We have asked Carl Truman to give this inaugural lecture, and the title of his address is Why We Need Classical Theology Now More Than Ever. I'd love to see you there. You can register at credomag.com. If you go to Credomag, you will find a page for the Center for Classical Theology. You can read about Carl Truman. You can find out when this event will take place. But most importantly, you can find out how you can register today. Spots are limited. I look forward to seeing you this November. Let's shift just a little bit over to Erasmus for a moment. So talk to me about the difference in... Erasmus believed that there were modifications that needed to happen, but they took and acted out in very different ways. And those were rooted in doctrinal aspects, beliefs, those sorts of things. But they they worked their way out societally, even geopolitically Mm. in very different ways. You know, so talk to us about Erasmus a little bit. Yeah, Erasmus is so fascinating. Uh, When I was writing this book, I thought, should I should I give an entire chapter to Erasmus? Yep. And I thought, well, I, I can't afford to do that. But it, it could be done, right? Because the story of Erasmus parallels in many ways and even conflicts in fascinating ways the story of the Reformers. So, you know, we were just talking about Luther. Luther early on has enormous respect for Erasmus. You think of what Erasmus has accomplished. Here is this humanist scholar who has applied the tools of humanism in order to give us a New Testament. Well, the the Reformers, the Greek New Testament that Erasmus produces, the Reformers are are indebted. Right. Everyone is. Right. I mean, it's such a major accomplishment. So in that sense, and there's even certain reformers, I mean, you look at the story of Calvin, I know that's not what we're focusing on, but Calvin early on, the young Calvin is very committed to being this blooming humanist scholar, uh, writing on on ancient sources uh, like Erasmus was doing, even producing and editing certain volumes. I mean, th- this is what Calvin's dreaming of. So in many ways, the humanist program is very compatible with the Reformation program. 
But we have to remember Renaissance humanism, and we talked about this in a previous episode, it is used by what we would call Roman Catholics and the Reformers alike. So in that sense, it's a help to both sides in terms of their literary output, their reliance on historical sources, even that slogan, you know, ad fontes, back to the sources, and, and so much more. However, it's not necessarily a commitment to a certain theology. There is a rebirth, a, a new birth of interest and revival of ancient sources, and with it, a certain mindfulness to what that means then for the flourishing of education, for example. Mm. So in that sense, the reformers are incredibly indebted. But there, there is a conflict because, at least with someone like Erasmus, because Erasmus doesn't necessarily see his use of those sources as a use that leads him towards reform, right? It's not that Erasmus has no issues with the church. We all know he has many issues. He writes entire books that are critical of the corruptions he sees. However, Luther himself pointed out that the difference between him and Erasmus was Erasmus saw these corruptions in need of a moral reform, Whereas Luther, it's not, it's not that he denies the need for moral reform, but he sees it as more fundamental, as a theological reform that's, that's necessary in the end. And there you begin to see Erasmus and Luther clash. Mm -hmm. Now, this becomes explosive in the 1520s, the mid-1520s, because there's all kinds of people approaching Erasmus saying, you know, is Erasmus part of the Reformation or not? And early on, many assume he is. Uh, you look at – it's fascinating looking at someone like Martin Bootser and others. They they assume in many ways that Erasmus and what he is doing early on is just parallel and even part of what, what the reformers are about. It quickly becomes apparent that's not necessarily the case. We can't assume that anymore. And there's many reasons for this, but one reason is their debate over the bondage of the will. Here, Erasmus writes against Luther's understanding of – of the will. And when Luther enters into this debate, which is one of the most, it's actually one of the busiest times of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it took him longer than he probably wanted to get to this debate. But when he does, Luther writes, he responds and reacts to Erasmus. And here Luther says, which might surprise us today because we don't think of the Reformation in these terms, but Luther really thinks this is the meat of the nut. This is the, if you're looking to understand what is underneath all these many concerns, this is it. And again, you know, we just mentioned Luther's break from Occam and Beale. It's not unrelated to that because Luther is following through on that break to say, well, if the Via Moderna is wrong, then what is original sin? And when we talk about the will, if Luther is going to embody an Augustinian understanding of depravity, then what does that mean for the will? And for Luther, it means, well, the will is in bondage. It is captive. It is. It, it does experience a type of slavery apart from Christ. And for Luther, this is very fitting, right? Because as he is turning away from the Via Moderna, he is throwing the Christian completely at the mercy of God. In other words, he is putting the Christian in a state of total dependency on the efficacy of God's grace, 
both to call the sinner to himself and to actually create new life within the sinner. In other words, Luther, this won't surprise listeners, Luther talked a lot about the devil. Uh, Luther really does see the unregenerate person as enslaved. They are truly captive. And the only way, it's not merely a bird, right, who's, who's limping or weak or needs help just getting off the ground. To use Paul's terms, the sinner is actually dead, mm-hmm. spiritually dead. And so Luther, turning to, to Paul and others, understanding this, will say to Erasmus, you are still giving the will too much credit. Actually, if the will truly is captive in the biblical sense, then what we need from God is we need God to be a liberator, to actually liberate us from that captivity, not a mere cooperation between the the sinner and God. I think in many ways, though Luther doesn't say this in so many words, I actually think that Luther, especially when you couple this emphasis on the bondage of the will with his teaching, his more mature teaching on justification by faith alone and the doctrine of imputation, I think that Luther is actually bringing to fulfillment what is pregnant in the Augustinian understanding of grace. So he's taking Augustine's very strong emphasis on the gratuity of God's grace, both in predestination as well as the new birth. But he's applying it further to say, well, if we are that dependent, what then does that mean, not just for regeneration, but for justification itself. Erasmus, this is a huge conflict for Erasmus because, number one, Erasmus completely disagrees about the bondage of the will. But number two, Erasmus doesn't even like how the debate is ensuing because he doesn't think Scripture is necessarily clear on the matter. Luther, in other words, what is a debate over soteriology actually reveals a more an undercurrent, Mm -hmm. and that is, is Scripture even clear in the first place so that we can have this debate? (laughs) And Luther thinks the answer is yes. In fact, you know, this will surprise people, Luther being sarcastic, I know. Uh, But Luther is quite sarcastic with Erasmus to say, Erasmus, the Holy Spirit here is not (laughs) blindfolded. The Holy Spirit has spoken through the biblical authors and on such an important issue as the bondage and liberation of the will. You know, Luther and Calvin had many disagreements with each other, but I find it telling that when Calvin picks up the same topic, the same debate in his controversies with, you know, Albertus Piggyus, he sounds a lot like Luther. Granted, his his work on the bondage and liberation of the will is different than Luther's in style. I think in many ways Calvin is there's a bit more clarity on some points where Luther was a bit ambiguous. But nonetheless, they are in agreement on the major tenets, which goes to show that not that there's there's no departures. I think with Melanchthon, you do see a little bit more of a, a synergistic move. But on the whole, many of the reformers are on the same page here right. to realize actually for us, Catholicity means retrieving this Augustinian understanding of grace an original sin, and actually bringing it to fulfillment in a way that maybe Augustine couldn't have imagined with, with, a, with a doctrine of forensic justification. That's good. As this kind of works its way through, his thinking, his theological engine room works its way out into just what the nature of 
what he thinks needs to change, like in the parishes, these sorts of things. And you turn to this in the next chapter, but we start thinking about liturgy and these sorts of things. And you pull out four very helpful aspects where he looks to evaluate these parishes. He also focuses on preaching. Mm. He begins to write hymns, and you say maybe possibly most importantly. But then he also retrieves another scenario where he's trying to pull out catechisms, right, Mm. and just redeploy those and encourages other pastors to work on things like this. In his specific catechism, he focuses on five different things, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper. My question to you is, so in one sense, we can see he's, he's not being completely novel. He's pulling in the Apostles' Creed, right? That's an obvious sense. Hmm. But why do you think uh, he went with the Apostles' Creed and, and not the Nicene Creed? Just yeah. out of my own curiosity. <laughs> yeah, uh, what a fascinating question. I think this is, let me say this before I even answer the question, Sam, because I think you know, we can get so wrapped up in, in so many of Luther's other writings. And you think of 1518, 1519, 1520, 1521. These are key years in which Luther is, some have called it, there's a, just a firestorm of literary power. Right. Many of his works are polemical. No, the, not all. You know, the freedom of the Christian is one of his most positive and, and beautiful statements of the Christian faith. But... In the midst of all of that polemical energy, we sometimes can forget Luther really cared about the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't simply uh, an intellectual debate with the best of of Rome's theologians. And we see this come out in his concern and involvement, intense involvement at times, with the liturgy of the church. Now, again, here's where certain caricatures— get perpetuated today that I, I don't think are helpful. Uh, we we tend to think of Luther as just trashing mm-hmm. <laughs> and throwing mm-hmm. out the liturgy, the medieval liturgy he inherited mm-hmm. as if it's a new day and he's going to write the whole thing on a blank tablet. Mm-hmm. And if you buy into that narrative, you then assume that, well, our Protestant churches today, they represent a departure from the church Catholic, the church universal, as Luther understood it. And that's just not the case. When you look at Luther's concern over the liturgy, it's really fascinating, isn't it? I mean, there's this story, you know, this is, I'll go back to 1522. Karlstad has, mm-hmm. you know, just to sum things up, Karlstad has gone quite radical yeah. with how the urgency and expediency, the rate at which he thinks the reform should progress. And Luther walks in and He's still – this is just a shocking moment for the church. I mean imagine you know, you're just an average churchgoer <laughs> and after Karlstadt has told you, let's dispense with everything, you know, let's, uh, to the point where it's, it's almost – it really is getting violent. Mm-hmm. You're thinking in your head, OK, this is a radical turn. This is a new day. Let's throw out the old, bring in the new. And here walks in the same man – who started the Reformation, as we now call it, wearing his Augustinian garb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he hasn't changed his clothes. Right. And that's not because he, you know, didn't have a wife who told him, hey, honey, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you should probably put on a new tie. You've been yeah. wearing that one for too long. Yeah. No, this is intentional. Mm-hmm. He's trying to communicate to the people 
that Karlstad has has moved in a radical direction. And Luther is quite intentional at this point to say, yes, we are going to reform the church from its innovative corruptions, but we still are the church. This is not the start of some sect, heretical sect as Rome thought it would be. And from there, Luther begins, as you mentioned, to reform the liturgy. But what that means is probably not what we mean today. Like you said, he's still including key parts of that Catholic universal church liturgy. Uh, And you mentioned some of those just a minute ago, including, and again, to Protestants today, you need to listen to this, including creeds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Luther is not no Bible but the creed. Mm -hmm. That too is a caricature. And so he's retaining the Gloria Patri. He's retaining the Apostles' Creed. He's still elevating the bread at the altar. He still wants the people to kneel before the Lord's table Mm -hmm. and many, many other medieval Mm -hmm. church practices, many of of which Karlstad was opposed to and had told the people otherwise. In fact, sit down. Don't fall over when I say this, if you're listening. But Luther even encouraged and, and modeled the what we call a divine reading of Scripture for the people, that Lectio Divina, in which the people were to read the Scriptures, they were to meditate on the Scriptures, they were to pray, and they were to then contemplate God. Luther saw this as not only essential to his own life, but to the the daily life of the churchgoer. Now, of course, Luther also put his own stamp on it. Mm-hmm. Given his crisis experience, Luther thought there has to be a, a type of wrestling match that occurs within that process to get to the point where you're at peace with God. But the point is Luther retained many of these medieval facets of the liturgy because in his mind – It's not that certain things didn't need to be reformed, like the Mass, for example, or transubstantiation. They did. But he doesn't see his reform of the liturgy as something new so much as a renewal of the liturgy that they should have inherited in the first place. Now, you mentioned the Apostles' Creed. I know it's a long way to get to your question, Sam. I think in part, why is Luther you know, going with the Apostles' Creed? He's certainly not against the Nicene Creed. Sure. In fact, in, he, he writes an entire book on, on creeds uh, later on, and he is very clear in his affirmation of the Nicene Creed. In mm-hmm. fact, Luther believed if you depart from the Nicene Creed, you're a heretic. It's as mm-hmm. simple as that. Mm-hmm. But early on, remember, this is early 1520s, right? You have to remember the state in which Luther finds the church. Some of these Christians could not even read. Mm. I mean, it, it, it is that serious. And some of them have not even read the Bible. And much of, not all, but much of their retention does come from what they are hearing or seeing. And so in that sense, I think the Apostles' Creed, though this may not be the only reason, I think the Apostles' Creed is a fitting place to start. Right. Right. Given its brevity, for these Christians at this time, it reintroduces them to the the Catholic universal faith of the church in a way that puts them and really links them arm to arm with the church fathers and even the early church that said the, the same faith. This is really crucial because that means from Sunday in to Sunday out, in the midst of being told by Rome you're a sect, you're innovative, you, this is a novelty, you're heretical, you're departing from Rome, that is going to result in eternal damnation and, and so much more, right? Mm-hmm. 
And the midst of being told that, for Luther to walk in and say, we will now say the Apostles' Creed together. Mm -hmm. What does that communicate to them? It communicates just the opposite. Stand firm. Mm -hmm. You can take that hit because you are linking arm in arm with the Church Catholic, the Church Universal, who said these same words, repeated the same faith, and believed this this same gospel and, and what it entails. I want to last kind of section here, just conclude with uh, Sola Scriptura. You make much of that and, and, and should, obviously. I want to read a brief quote and then just let you go for a moment. So you say, towards the end of chapter 8, say, Sola Scriptura at Worms may have sounded shocking to his opponents, but Luther was saying nothing that church fathers before him had not said already. Sola Scriptura was a Catholic doctrine, Luther insisted. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, talk to us about that for a moment. And, um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is so important to emphasize, right? Because I think Protestants have been told, especially if they look at anything in the popular evangelical world, they've been told again and again just the opposite. Mm-hmm. They've been told to believe Sola Scriptura, well, that came with Luther. And this is a new doctrine that the church had failed to to teach, and uh, Luther, for the first time, is now putting the church back to the Bible. <laughs> I think that would have been bizarre to Luther at best and disgusting to Luther at worst, mm. because it would have said to Luther, what you are doing is novel, and Luther, yeah, we have bold statements from him, But when you look at them in context, Luther thinks, no, I am being the faithful Catholic son of the church here. Now, it takes some time. It doesn't come to Luther all at once. In fact, in some of his more intense debates, you think, for example, about Leipzig in 1519, the way that Luther arrives at some of these scriptural conclusions, it's not easy for him. In fact, sometimes he's cornered into them mm-hmm. without realizing it un- until he's stuck. But the point is, when Luther comes to the conclusion that scripture, because it is inspired by God, is therefore our final court of appeal, it is our normy norm. When he comes to that conclusion, Luther understands, yes, this is in conflict with my opponents. However, he does not appreciate their response and accusation that, well, Luther, that is actually not what the church has believed. Now, it's a complicated matrix of events, and and you can, you know, listeners can read that chapter where I explore each of Luther's encounters with some of his opponents and, and how this whole story takes place. But the point is this, Luther arrives at a more mature position where he says, actually, to fall on the authority of Scripture over against, say, the authority of the papacy is exactly what not just the Reformers taught, but it's actually indebted to the Church Fathers themselves. When you look at their writings, they thought of Scripture in this way. They put themselves and ecclesiastical authority under the primacy of of the scriptures and its authority over them. And so that's comforting to Luther because he doesn't see Sola Scriptura as a novel thing, but actually as as quite an ancient thing. And I think we could go further and add this. Uh, 
it's not that Luther thinks of sola scriptura as, say, the dispensing with tradition. I think Luther thinks of tradition as supporting sola scriptura, and that then re-envisions how we today should think of what's happening in everything from 1517 to 1525. Luther is not necessarily, I think sometimes as Protestants we get this picture that, okay, Luther is for scripture and his opponents were for tradition. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. It was more of a debate over tradition versus tradition. The question just was, how do we define tradition? So Luther was not against tradition. He actually saw it as instrumental to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Is even, you know, even that phrase is pregnant with, with the idea of tradition. And so historians like Heiko Obermann have done a, an amazing job of bringing this to light. That should correct some of our misconceptions of, of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is not the same thing as nuda or solo scriptura, mm-hmm. as it's popularly called. Luther would encounter that with certain radical figures, even beginning as early as Karlstad. And what she would say to Karlstad, Karlstad, you've swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. <laughs> this is Luther insulting Karlstad as if that's the program of the Reformation and he's saying it's not. The radicals certainly radicalize Sola Scriptura, but Luther uh, has no patience for them. <laughs> and I don't think we should either today. To be Protestant today is to have our ties to the reformers, but not the radicals. And if we don't make that distinction, then we actually end up just like the radicals, throwing tradition overboard, not understanding its instrumentality that actually buttresses in many ways, not just the faith of the church Catholic universal, but even our belief in soul scripture itself. And so we actually shoot ourselves in the foot. Well, I appreciate the, just want to note with the, the listener as well, your concluding chapter, I really appreciated your work I mean, all the way through, but I've noted especially and was helped by your understanding of what you rendered with uh, Trent, what it was, what it wasn't, and just your work as a, as a scholar to try to reintroduce us in many ways to some things that have been lost in translation of what the Reformation was, what it wasn't, those sorts of things. I think personally, I found myself reading, rethinking Luther and being encouraged for my own ministry, my own life. Uh, of just his fearlessness in which he took on a number of things and he was taking his life into his own hands in mm. many ways and, and and the implications of his doctrine, even in the peasant revolts, those sorts of things, these were serious things, yeah. you know, and, and he did not take them lightly and they had impact and, and uh, implications for not just himself, but but so many. So thank you so much for your work. Again, the book is The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic an apostolic church uh, by Zondervan. And so thank you again for your work and, and just appreciate you modeling for us and then giving us the ability to read your fruits of your work. So thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.